Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about our theme, which changes from episode to episode. My name's Eden Davis, and joining me this week for the Miracle Satellite Technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Going all right, thanks, Ed. I definitely hit a bit of a wall this week with, mm. you know, everything. Mm. Um, and it's funny, isn't it? Mental health in these times where I think it's very hard to try and make anything better and i've found a lot of respite in just recognizing that i'm very tired and understanding kind of how much energy i'm using to just be okay and that that mm. is that is also exhausting but also just kind of recognizing it and letting it be and then it can just sort of pass i recommend it so that's how I am, Ed. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. I think one of the problems with, I mean, obviously, as as we mentioned before, there's like Florida isn't in a lockdown of any sort, so it's not like you know what people in the UK are going through of having to kind of endure a second lockdown at this point, and obviously in other countries as well. But uh, I have found the last month or so a lot harder than the preceding seven in terms of dealing with the isolation of it all of the uh, diminished opportunities to do things and i think a large part of a large part of it is just down to the time of year i feel like usually the clocks uh going backwards doesn't affect me that much like yeah obviously i notice that the the days get shorter and everything but like it doesn't affect me too much psychologically but it does uh, not being able to kind of like go out for long walks in the evening because I just get really worried about, you know, walking around at night and getting hit by a car because uh, Florida drivers, not great. American yeah. drivers in general, not particularly good, but Florida drivers in my experience are particularly bad. And so like just knowing that once you get to seven, uh, actually once you get to like six o'clock in the evening like it's just going to be pitch black and the nights are going to be creeping in versus even a month ago where you would still get a decent amount of light at like eight o'clock at night and you could kind of like go out and just kind of like enjoy a little bit of the tail end of the sunshine knowing that that isn't possible anymore i think has, has really hit me in a way that i wasn't expecting but also you know like we're in the holiday period now where where halloween is followed quickly by thanksgiving is followed quickly by christmas and i feel like the experience of you know self-isolating and trying to avoid contact with people as much as possible feels more pronounced in this part of the year than it did during the summer where you know like not being able to hang out with people is, mm. is notable and like not going into the office was was kind of uh, a big change but like not having the kind of events that we would have at work around thanksgiving or halloween and not knowing that we're not going to have like a christmas party and all this sort of stuff all of that stuff being completely disrupted feels more impactful i think than you know the early part of the year where those kind of big signifier signpost events 
were just not really there. Like the most there was was like Fourth of July, which you know for me has never been kind of a major thing. It's been nice that I get the day off or whatever, but it's not kind of ha- it doesn't have the cultural weight to it that certainly Halloween and Christmas have to them. I agree, and I think there's this odd kind of relationship to the winter festivities and mm. the scale of the pandemic and that it's happening to everyone. And that's the thing that my brain consistently really struggles to get around. Like, oh, it's not just the UK being really silly with Brexit. This is a bad thing <laughs> that is happening across the globe. And yet I'm very much a New Year's fan. Not mm. necessarily going out. I just love the energy around New Year. I love the feeling yeah. on the 1st of January, you know, hangover aside of like, look at this whole year that's ahead of us, like almost like a loading bar. Like, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it's not rendered yet. We, we have it all um, in front of us. And that that is something that applies to everyone around the world. Like that I can grasp. And I guess because that's a very positive... <laughs> kind of universality um so it's strange to have that and that you know at midnight covid won't be over we won't have the release of 2020 for you know for some time Mm, and i agree with you i think it's the disruption because it it heightens the loss because Mm. it's incredibly tangible like christmas is effectively (laughs) cancelled and i mean that in the retro uh retro meaning yeah we we haven't decided the magi are problematic yeah although they probably were let's be fair is Mm. that ethical gold i don't think so source it somewhere (laughs) uh, responsible and i really feel for you know because we uh surprise surprise live in a a capitalist colonialist apparently christian you know, well, that's the people who are really in power. You know, Christmas is the focus. It's not things like, you know, Hanukkah and Eid. And mm. and so that is, um, it's, yeah, it's just, oh, it's, you know, not, not to be too the history boys about it, but it's just one fucking thing after another, isn't it? <laughs> mm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just because I had a very busy week of work, I also haven't really been able to do anything culturally. So that also kind of sucks a lot of the fun out of it. You know, at least you know during the early early t- weeks of or early months of the pandemic like work wasn't too bad so i got like a lot of books and films done and now it's like oh god we're getting towards the end of the year we have a lot of work to do <laughs> it's like i don't even have time to kind of i don't know sit and watch french films you know which i would mm. very much like to be doing and haven't really had the opportunity to do so like yeah so here's here's hoping post-holiday part of the pandemic is going to be a little easier for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> because it's not going away for a little while. So we'll go on to the news for this week. And uh, the the first news story that you and I were both very, very excited about is uh, our our boy, uh, David Lynch, <laughs> has uh, lined up a new project. He is apparently going to be making a series for Netflix called Wisteria, and that's pretty much everyone, all that anyone knows about it. It may, in fact, be all anyone knows about it after they watch it, based on you know his his past work and particularly you know his his recent work. But it's very exciting news. Uh, you and I obviously have talked quite a bit in the past about our love of David Lynch, particularly uh, Twin Peaks: The Return, and 
I am just like so excited to see him do more work because obviously we had that very long stretch between Inland Empire and Twin Peaks The Return where, you know, he was doing kind of little small things, but he wasn't able to do anything on like a really big canvas. So the idea of him being able to do something on a similarly kind of big scale and potentially something original, assuming that Wisteria isn't some sort of like pseudo spin-off of Twin Peaks or whatever, is very, very exciting because, you know, it has been a while since we've had properly original work from David Lynch. Yeah, I'm hoping that it's a Desperate Housewives Mm -hmm. spin-off, you know, because the ladies of Wisteria Lane, a lot of people are like, oh, it's like Twin Peaks. I'm like, it's nothing like Twin Peaks. It's it's people fucking up in suburbia. And that describes a lot of (laughs) output. But you are correct. It's been a long time since we've had original David Lynch stuff. And I am excited, but I hope it's better than the short film he made with the little monkey. Um, Because that was not great. That genuinely felt like someone who doesn't like Lynch and who did a sketch about how much they dislike (laughs) him. Because I was like, yeah, fair play. This is every criticism of David Lynch. Because I will come out to bat for our boy anytime. But that was like, uh, no, yeah, no. (laughs) Yeah, that definitely felt like... I mean, like he made that film like ages ago and it just happened to get put out by Netflix. And I think that that definitely felt like, you know, a weird little curio that, I don't know, they put out because they wanted to develop some sort of a relationship with him, I guess. Because I know that there have been kind of like rumours about him working with Netflix for a while. And I think there was a report a while ago about someone seeing him going to the Netflix offices and things like that. So like, if it's just a kind of amuse-bouche to the whole thing, then I'm not too uh, bothered about that that short film. But yeah, it definitely felt like uh, a weird little tossed-off thing as opposed to something genuinely kind of significant or interesting in his career. Mm, mm. Our last bit of news, because it was, a, I think, a fairly quiet week in terms of uh, film and TV news, uh, was the news today that David Prowse had passed away at the age of 85. David Prowse, of course, uh, iconic for his portrayal of the body of Darth Vader in the original Star Wars movies, but also a icon in his own right to generations of British school children as, as the green cross code man. Arguably saved a great many lives, which I think is a, uh, a wonderful legacy to have. But also, you know, he had other small roles in things like A Clockwork Orange and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where he was always playing uh, what he was, which was an immensely imposing large man. <laughs> and <laughs> by all accounts, uh, just a thoroughly lovely human being. I saw Mark Hamill uh, sharing some kind of his thoughts about working with David Prowse on Twitter earlier and just what a, a decent person he found him to be. And yeah, it's just a very sad thing when someone like that who has such kind of a huge cultural legacy passes away, especially in a case where they seem like fairly, fairly kind of like humble and underrated in it. Because obviously, you know, when people think of Darth Vader, they think of the voice or they think of George Lucas for creating him and things like that, you know, like the, the, the body of David Prowse is not something that I think people think that much about, even though it's such a big part of the what makes Darth Vader such uh, a iconic character. For sure. And I think there's something about, you know, uh, Anthony Daniels, who is C-3PO, Peter Mayhew is Chewbacca, and, mm. well, like the, the men inside these iconic characters 
and everyone just sees the character and of course you you don't recognize any of them facially so it must be such a bizarre level of fame that we don't really have much anymore where you are there <laughs> you, you are there the whole time and you are part of this iconic legacy and so defined and yet also kind of protected I mean, the idea of fame to me is horrific. So <laughs> I'm very much biased in putting my own spin on that experience. But that must be, yeah, an interesting one. And Dave Prowse as well, like, in terms of the body and, and like the physical performance, you know, he really knew how to hold himself. And I mean, I'm not even really sure how it was done on set. And I'm sure a million Star Wars um fans can correct me but whether someone else is saying the lines or he's saying the lines and then dubbed over mm, he, i can confirm that it's him because yeah. there is uh there is footage out there of you know raw footage of the film being made which is very funny just because he obviously had a very thick west country accent and <laughs> yeah. uh, i i'm now just stealing jokes from richard herring who used to do this in <laughs> uh his act years and years ago but yeah like him being like if you remember the rebel alliance and a traitor take her away you know there is something just like very hilarious and incongruous about that for sure and yet he still has this you know this gravitas and absolutely nothing wrong with having a west country accent either i'd like to point out but i think there's something quite amazing about doing a role when you sort of know your voice isn't going to be part of it and mm. how he used his stature kind of to, to be so sinister and be so menacing. And yet also so protective in the green grass coat, man. Like that's someone who really understands their body and the space and how to... Because every time you see Darth Vader on screen, your eyes are drawn to him. Like even mm. before he starts speaking and like the his kind of his gait... And everything is just, oh, yeah, terrifying. Also, uh, because any chance I get to mention it, I love to, the raw footage of Peter Mayhew as Chewbacca, just making Mm. up Chewbacca's lines. Uh, My favourite being, that old man is mad. (laughs) (laughs) And then Harrison Ford being like, you're right, Chewie. Like, oh, it's beautiful. (laughs) Treat yourselves. It should all still be on YouTube. Yeah, we really need those cuts released. Like, we need the original versions to be put out by disney but also the original original versions where (laughs) we don't have the uh the growls we don't have james old jones we just have everyone's raw (laughs) audio and we get to experience the i'm going to assume probably a lot campier version (laughs) of uh, of star wars which already had like a certain degree of uh camp fun to it so we're going to the main topic for this week and it kind of stems from uh, a news story uh, this week. Sia, the uh, singer and kind of visual artist, released a trailer for her forthcoming film, which I guess is is kind of a film and an album called Music, which is uh, which stars uh, Kate Hudson as a, a woman who has to take care of her sister, played by Maddie Ziegler, who has uh, autism, and it is um, from the trailer. You know, it's all about how the character of music played by Maddie Ziegler, which in and of itself, you know, that that's just one of those things. As soon as I thought, Oh, the character's called music. Great. Uh, it just immediately kind of sets the eyes rolling. Oh, you could just call her melody and that would be at least, Oh, okay. Sorry. sorry. 
yeah, it's kind of about how the character of of music sees the world, which is you know she listens to music and that kind of creates these fantastic kind of like colorful sequences and immediately it got pushed back from uh, people within the kind of like the autistic community who said you know that it felt it was it was bad for Sia to cast Maddie Ziegler who is not autistic as a character who is uh, when there are plenty of people with autism who could have played the role and I'm certain that they did uh, audition for the role and just how at least based on the trailer it seems to propagate a lot of stereotypical ideas about what autism is and what how people who uh, have autism react to stimuli and the world and then Sia got very very defensive about it in a kind of very aggressive way with people which obviously you know kind of like made the whole situation worse and so we wanted to kind of take that as a jumping off point to talk about you know depictions of autism and people on the autism spectrum in film and television because it is something that I think uh, is happening more and more you are starting to see more characters in tv shows and on films who have autism but by and large there isn't a great deal of attention played to making it seem authentic and you know in certainly in some of the films that came up in my research they tend to veer quite far to extremes which I think is also a problem just in general in any depiction of neurodivergence or, um, you know, kind of like disability. But it seems especially pronounced with autism, which is something that, you know, like the research on it and the understanding of it is something that's only really kind of come on in great bounds since like the 80s. So in terms of pop culture, it's something that's fairly, fairly new. And it feels like film and TV... I think film more than TV likes to think that it's more progressive than it actually is as an industry mm-hmm. on every level. And yeah. it really is often far behind or kind of coming to things last. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. hard to find people who are making truly progressive, like radical films, particularly in the mainstream. Now, Sia, oh my God, where to start, Ed? So we both know that we're talking as neurotypical people. Um, and we sort yeah. of wanted to look into this as in in kind of like a, in an allyship sort of way, because I think we both had the same reaction to that trailer and the whole concept of the film, which again, and, and kind of thinking about um, <laughs> kind of what I said about Netflix and David Lynch and the monkey earlier, like this sounds like accidental partridge or, mm-hmm. or like a 30 rock film. Like, because even the yes. setup is like so mawkish and sentimental and incredibly disappointing from Sia, who, putting aside the, you know, the lack of ethics in this, <laughs> of which there is many, Sia was sort of seen as, at least in her live work, this sort of mix between, you know, she was a performance artist as well. And it's the idea that she's incredibly shy and had lots of kind of stand-ins for her. And she's no stranger to controversy because it was, I think, the, you know, her relation, her working relationship with Maddie Ziegler was put under the microscope in terms of like um, Chandelier and for the video with um, Shia LaBeouf, um, mm. who is, of course, you know, a, a completely... Um, <laughs> Not an enfant terrible at all, either, you know. 
and accusations of saying, well, this is reminiscent of child abuse and it's very disturbing. And I think there was a bit more of an argument to be had around that because, again, it's like, well, has anyone seen Dance Moms? Like, Maddie Ziegler's no stranger to being like... I was like, that's that's the real crime here. And you can argue, you know, there's a lot of sort of interpretation in those videos. And Sia was actually very apologetic. She was really hurt because I think she experienced assault and abuse herself and, and she was really pained to think that she could make it worse for other survivors mm. and but to be like this is this is the hill that she's dying on and her response to the backlash let alone how incredibly offensive just because it's so you know again not even because it misrepresents autistic people so horribly but just in terms of like an original story, <laughs> it's offensively bland and predictable. And, you know, but that's not the main issue. The main issue is just like how patronizing and disrespectful and propagating all of these myths that it is. And that she has doubled down. And when you were talking about, you know, autistic actors who went to audition and were turned away and people saying like you know well you know you're lying if you said no autistic people weren't available or you're trying to do it for our benefit because we'd be too overwhelmed or anything like that and she just replied maybe you're just a bad actor which mm, is like yeah. not i mean it's so like gauche doesn't even cover it it's just it plain mean it's so rude and i don't see how she thinks this is a good look like for anyone mm. the fact that she's involved with autism speaks as well who are and i use this in the euphemistic diplomatic term a controversial group around autism mm. and it's just like oh my god read a fucking book or listen to someone with autism there's an amazing article um by sophie buck in dazed which uh i think she must have pitched in a very uh righteous rage because the title of it uh, is an actually autistic person responds to see as controversial new film music. And it's just coming back to the sort of like the sort of, that it's bland and offensive is also because it's just propagating these tropes as well. Mm, it, and and yeah. because it's what we're all really used to seeing and it's horrible. And Sophie Buck goes into this um, in great detail in her article, you know, the number of, um, disabled people, like the actually disabled characters on TV is something like 3%, uh, glad kind of, uh, who, who do sort of these kind of surveys of marginalised groups and how they're actually represented. That's 3%, Ed. 95% of them are portrayed by people, actors without disabilities, and you're just, or, or, or whatever they're meant to be representing. And I think she sums it up so perfectly where she says, why are autistic people shamed for being themselves? but a neurotypical actor gets rewarded for inaccurately and reductively assuming an autistic identity. And I'm like, oh, I mean, that's in, that's entirely it, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah, I was just trying to think there, like, what are the actors who, you know, actually portray a condition they have? And the only one I can think of in recent years that was, like, really high profile is RJ Mitty in uh, Breaking Bad, playing Walt Jr., yeah. who, you know, actually had cerebral palsy, and, you know, portrays a character who has cerebral palsy and it's, you know, it's not a focal point of the show, but it's like an important part of, you know, of his life and his character and his experience. 
and there is so little of that you know for the most part i think this this goes for any kind of like uh neurodivergence or or disability or anything is that you know for actors who are you know do not have those conditions but want to portray them there's that sense of like oh it's brave yeah. you know it's a it's a challenge it's not uh, i'm sure obviously they are also probably coming at it from a empathetic point of view they want to try and depict something they want to make people aware of you know whatever condition it is they want to depict and i, I think i'm sure that sia is kind of coming from that position as well and i think some of her defensiveness i think comes from that because like she when you're just thinking, you know, oh, I, I made this based on someone I know who has autism and, you know, I want to do it to kind of like celebrate them and then everyone gets mad at them. And so like some of that defense stuff, I think, comes from that sense of like, I'm trying to do you people a favor. I'm trying to draw attention to your like experiences, not realizing that the problem is that she doesn't seem to understand them. So her intentions in that instance matter way less than the outcome. For and, sure. You know, it, it's very analogous to like, you know, when people would point out to, you know, the, the director or the writer of Green Book about yeah. why that movie is bad <laughs> and why like it, it is kind of like bone deep racist whilst trying to present itself as kind of an anti-racist text and then just kind of being like very defensive about it all because like, oh, we're trying to make something about, you know, healing the world. And it's like, yeah, but you, you, you've made a very bad movie that, you know, kind of treads in these like horrible racist stereotypes. And I think that Sia's response kind of reminds me of some of the talk that you saw of, uh, uh, around that movie. For sure. And I think it's this really strange idea of like, people saying, oh, why can't I tell this story and getting really uppity about it? And it's like, because it's not actually yours if you don't work with people and listen to them. Mm. And it's this kind of, like, is this for you? Like, why are you telling this story in the first place? Oh, I'm not being very articulate because I get such a visceral reaction to it, Ed. I find it hard to verbalise. Yeah. Because it's it's kind of the arrogance coupled mm -hmm. with the defensiveness of like but it's mine and I won't share it's that is that possession isn't it over something because I just think why did Sia decide oh I'm gonna write I'm, I'm gonna write and direct this film about autism of which you know I mean is it the kind of trotting out I have autistic friends defense like oh my <laughs> god no this film Ed which she based on she wrote with a children's book author based on a one-page story she wrote in 2007. 2007. Christ. And it was filmed in 2017. And it's like, okay, no, no one at any point was like, oh, guys, I've been uh, sort of on the internet at any point in the past five years, and it turns out <laughs> this isn't a good idea and could be really harmful. Because who is it for? Who is it mm. for? And there's so many like inconsistencies in terms of, who this character would actually be. And I think a lot of it is incredibly lazy writing and a mistaking neurodivergence or any kind of condition for a character, right? That somehow mm. like autism is a personality. And thinking of the examples that I was looking up for this, the idea of like coding someone as autistic or like Asperger's without actually outwardly saying it to also deflect from criticism. 
but this very <clears throat> specific and again reductive idea of the Asperger's is like oh there's sort of a bit of OCD type rigidity in the behavior or maybe you know socially being a bit blunt and that being sort of a source of of humor but the joke always seems to be on them um being like having like a brilliant mind um mm. but also just being like oh they're just so detached from the world they live they see it in a different way and isn't that wonderful and it's like well what? but that's still at this for the service of neurotypical people to be like they're all the same and it's hard to represent these things in film and mm. tv in terms of it being like a visual medium but then for the love of god hire or hire autistic writers that they'll they'll do it they'll represent it for the i just oh i i keep coming to this Ed. i don't understand why white people are like i'm going to make a film about slavery and racism mm. because i think it's the entitlement isn't it ed it's that it's the yeah completely unbridled entitlement that i'm just staggered and, and rambling about yeah it's like the feigning of a sense of objectivity i think where you're like i'm looking at this from the outside so i can perfectly kind of like detail this experience whether it is you know like you say of, of white people making movies about black people or you know, neurotypical people making movies about you know neural uh, divergent people and it comes down to that feeling of like you know i'm not part of this situation you know i can make a movie about racism in the 60s because i'm a white person in 2019 or two, whatever when did green book come out 2018 whatever yeah. um you know i you know i'm removed from this and i can portray it accurately and just like not having your own awareness that of your own limitations and your own biases and in one of the articles you shared with me about this there was an article um refinery 29 there was a, an autistic person writing about uh you know th these kind of depictions and the, the phrase that they used was uh nothing about us without us which i think just like so crystallizes yeah. the idea of pretty much anything to do with representation which is like you know, you like. I'm very much of the opinion that you know anyone can tell any story as long as they do the legwork. Like, as long as you consult with people who have knowledge of the uh, of the subject, as long as you're open to people telling you that you know your ideas about whatever subject you're telling may be you know flawed or incorrect, and they provide you with a fuller picture. And you know, like you're still gonna have like problems because nothing, no one's perfect on these things. But yeah. like you can create a richer and fuller version of things. And from everything that's kind of like been discussed about Sierra on this project, and the fact she was working with Autism Speaks, which like as you say are are controversial and are more in the instead of you know trying to help people with autism kind of like live in the world, kind of like more about that they're more of the kind of oh it's a thing we should try and cure perspective which you know is is not a great uh attitude to have to something that is you know genetic and behavioral and probably not curable in any kind of like realistic sense and, and so like the, the there's a, a great sense there that she has not like consulted with people who are actually kind of knowledgeable about the subject and who could you know provide a real kind of useful perspective on the experience of being autistic and what people who are autistic go through on a day-to-day -day basis instead what you end up with you know based on again on the trailer is you end up with this 
kind of very extreme caricature that's very much in line with you know the the extremes of what we see in depictions of autism which is on the one hand you have people who are you know like like uh, freddie highmore in the good doctor like mm. a character who is like you know high functioning you know he's like a genius doctor even though he's very young because he of the way his brain works and all this sort of thing and then on the other you know people who are just like completely unable to function in society and obviously there are people on that it's a spectrum obviously there are extremes to it but there's very little art that's about the many millions of people who exist in the middle who are you know exhibit uh, problems with social cues and you know you know kind of are kind of find it a little hard to operate in society as a result but are able to have jobs and have families and just live like relatively normal lives just with this as an aspect of their personalities and I think the fact that the only examples I could see of oh you know where like looking at like what are good depictions of autism were things like um the character of Max Braverman on Parenthood, which is, you know, kind of a show by Jason Katums who did Friday Night Lights and, you know, was a show that I think took great pains to try and get the details right of what it is to be, like, autistic and the experience of having an autistic child and things like that. Or Mary and Max, the kind of, like, stop-motion animated film that came out 11 years ago at this point and therefore was, like, being made sort of independently outside of the Hollywood norm points to the fact that you know, like these are things that if someone makes it the focal point of the story they're telling or they're trying to operate within the Hollywood system where extremes are valued more in these situations, again, because of that whole idea of like, oh, you're trying to do something that's challenging or you're trying to prove how brave you are in portraying this thing, you're inevitably just going to end up with things that are wildly inaccurate and not representative of the experiences of most people who actually have autism. For sure, and sensationalising it. And I think mm. what you, your point about objectivity is absolutely spot on, Ed, because, again, it's the idea of, and let's be honest, majority middle-class white men mm. and women who believe that they are neutral. Yes, and that they are they're the, the default. Exactly, that they're the default and everyone else is deviant, essentially, from mm. them. And I mean, the the sort of... God, like literally the center of the universe kind of feeling and everything else is just different and happening in parallel. And it's that thing where it's like, well, you you don't even really have an autistic main character. You believe that you are the main character the whole time. And I think the thing that's really frustrating is that there is just this one depiction of autism. And like you say, there are these extremes and there's not the middle, which is that someone just be autistic and it's not a big deal like mm-hmm. i've sort of started i think it was kind of the early nautical well, think about house for example which had your whammy of like oh maybe house is sort of autistic and you could you know and remember that was never in any like house being a sort of you know a sherlock holmes but but doctor um mm. you know n- none of arthur conan doyle's original work ever said that he you know Sherlock Holmes was traumatized and hypervigilant <laughs> and a heroin addict. You know, he wasn't autistic, but that's kind of how, and again, in terms of coding, like looking at Sherlock, yeah. basically sort of trying to, you know, imply, just going <laughs> to, I'm not going to tell you what to do, I'm just going to heavily imply it that he's autistic and that's the source of his powers, but also why he's so awkward and just can't 
on with people and it's just oh whereas actually it's my therapist said in a way I, I really like this she said I don't believe it's a spectrum it's a bowl and everyone's kind of on the rim or sort of deeper in and it's not this kind of binary opposition of a line and we talk about a spectrum and still mm. imagine a line I think whereas actually it's just this this range and it's fully dimensional and you know it's not the only thing about a person and it's not their character it's yeah I'm still I'm just consistently staggered Ed <laughs> mm. yeah I guess the extremes for it are it's either an obstacle or it's a superpower mm. oh yeah, yeah 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 and it's not like just a thing that you know kind of like people have as part of their everyday life you know and that's kind of like what you see in like you said in in Sherlock where it's not out like stated but that's kind of the he's kind of coded that way or a character like Sheldon in the Big Bang Theory who again it's never said if he has some sort of the if he's like autistic who's on the spectrum but everyone kind of assumes because he's really rude and he's also a genius that that must be part of it and uh, or like Ben Affleck in The Accountant, where it's actually stated that he's meant to have autism, but then the idea is like, oh yes, he's like a super genius math accountant, and also he's great at kung fu. And it's kind of like these are all, you know, even if you could argue like they're sort of positive, and they're saying, oh, like you know, they're these people are you know kind of exceptional human beings in some way. They're kind of like great at these things. It's also like really harmful because it just propagates these incorrect expectations of what it is like for someone to be autistic and you know for people who don't know that many autistic people in real life and only experience it through pop culture which i think is most people because there aren't that many people who have autism in the in the total population then it's like you know kind of creates these really harmful expectations and you know that can be like quite damaging in like kind of like if really insidious ways and also, I think there's just a kind of lack of understanding in music having a a young girl who's autistic, like she's she's nonverbal autistic. But in terms of like mm. Aspergers and things, it a reason that so it's only really women who get diagnosed at the moment at this point in time who get um, Aspergers diagnoses when they're much older is because there's still a a gender bias towards understanding how autism, how to recognise it in in boys and, and girls. And I think it's kind of telling that in terms of autistic women, precisely because of that superhero thing and like people being kind of, you know, achieving <laughs> through, you know, is it adversity or like you say, their superpower, that Temple Grandin is one of the only films I can think of that features a woman with autism. Um, mm. And Temple Grandin was, as far as I'm aware, pretty heavily involved with yeah. um, with the film. So I feel a bit like, oh, okay. Um, but again, it's this Claire Danes portraying Temple Grandin. But it's that thing of like, well, maybe they needed the, the big name rather than ca than having an autistic actor. But then how can an autistic actor ever become a big name if no one casts them? And it's that mm. kind of catch-22. Yeah, it's very much like the situation last year or the year before when, you know, Scarlett Johansson was going to be playing a trans man oh, in God. a movie until everyone said, this seems horribly offensive and maybe, you know, 
someone like Chaz Bono could play this role, like someone yeah. who's actually a trans man and is a like an actor who is yeah well known and you know it gets into the uh, ec- economics of these sort of stories, which is that you know people want to tell stories that are new and haven't been told before in film and television, certainly in a mainstream context, but you know the economics of it is like it's going to be really hard to convince a studio to invest you know millions of dollars in making a story that's not centered around a a big name but unless you know neurodivergent actors or trans actors are able to be in big movies then they're not going to get more big movies made about their stories and it's like this horrible like say a cash 22 like this horrible cycle where these movies end up just being made by people who do not have that experience and are not really going to be able to offer that insight because it's the only way those stories are going to get made on a scale where lots of people get to see them. Obviously, you know, there are trans filmmakers out there. Um, uh, most recently, you know, there's that movie Lingua Franca on Netflix, which, you know, has got great uh, reviews and is very much kind of like, you know, a, a trans woman getting to tell a story about, you know, being trans. But in the mainstream, you know, that's that's exceedingly rare and you know until there is kind of like a breakthrough actor or role or story that kind of centers people who are otherwise kind of like marginalized in culture then that's probably never going to change you're going to have to kind of like keep making these stories like on the margins and i think that's also kind of like one of the things that's quite disappointing about sia and music is that like she is in a position where she doesn't have to cast Maddie Ziegler for that. Like, she's got enough clout to make this movie, and you know she could have done she could have done more. And I think that's kind of like the thing about it that is really disappointing. Like, she absolutely is in the position where she could have cast uh, someone who has autism to depict someone who has autism, and she didn't. Completely, and that's why she's reacting in such a vicious way like Mm -hmm. lashing back to the backlash because if she genuinely wanted to make a compassionate film about autism she'd listen to this kind of criticism and again criticism is very different from harassment folks (laughs) let's not forget and that's it people are taking her in good faith and criticizing her work on that basis and she's just coming back with insults and, and harassing back I wonder if it, I wonder if at some point actually what you're saying there about um Lingua Franca and Netflix Ed is that I wonder whether one day we'll get the kind of autism equivalent of a documentary like Disclosure, which I think mm. is incredible and everyone should watch, um, where it's made entirely by trans people. Um I think it's it's mainly trans women and disclosure, but it they manage to highlight in their own words and from their own experiences the nuance and, and and saying why all you know not casting uh trans actors is is quite so dangerous and whether at, at some point you know but they shouldn't have to <laughs> this is how i feel mm. like they shouldn't have to be the ones to educate us and the entitlement and just the blinkeredness of sierra is yeah really disappointing so We'll end this episode. We end all our episodes with short verse, short recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you listeners will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Leeds Short Film Festival. 
they have put mm. pretty much the entirety of their program online off the back of the pandemic and they are such brilliant sort of hour and a half like packages like i'm really um i was really impressed by like the range of programs that they've that they've done and the strands within it um and you can rent um i think it's for about two or three days each for three pounds it's an absolute bargain and you get to see so many different um films and, and i i'm quite excited that more short films not to say that there's a silver lining in the pandemic but the push to put content online particularly short films i think is really interesting because typically short films are just that kind of like quite industry this is your business card and you're going to become a feature filmmaker and a real do a real film and it's really lovely to see that there's more access for people to enjoy and explore shorts because i think they're so overlooked um, and it's strange to kind of put them in a cinema unless it's, you know, with with loads of them in a festival. So it's nice to kind of bring that into the home space. And I watched the, um, it was the local Yorkshire selection, which I thought was really strong. So that's Leeds Short Film Festival. Cool. I am going to recommend the first episode of small acts the steve mcqueen anthology series which has just started airing uh, on the bbc in the uk and on amazon prime in the us and i presume everywhere else um small acts is a series of five essentially five feature-length movies all about uh different experiences and eras of the caribbean community in london uh, over the back the back half of the 20th century the first episode is called mangrove and it's all about the trial of the mangrove nine who were nine uh, black activists who were put on trial for inciting a riot and then clashing with police over the harassment campaign that was waged against the mangrove restaurant in notting hill it's uh, a really wonderful movie it's kind of a great visually dynamic look at life in Notting Hill during the you know, late 60s and early 70s. It is this really compelling uh, court drama, which you know kind of deals with how the various members of the nine represented themselves and really kind of like put into question the biases of the British court system, uh, which tended to favour the police who, you know, fabricated evidence in order to, you know, kind of harass members of this community. And... I think it is one of the best films that Steve McQueen has made. I say as someone who's, you know, very up and down on on his work, I think this is like a real step up for him as a filmmaker in that it's like just full of life and, you know, tackles a worthy subject in a way that feels very vibrant. And I think it's wonderful. I'm really excited to see the rest of the films in the series as they come out. I'm particularly excited to see the second episode lovers rock which i believe is out now and uh, i think we'll probably be discussing it uh in a few weeks here as well because i think it's a really exciting development for steve mcqueen but also you know potentially as a model for auteurs going forward to try and you know make movies interesting movies on like a a, a, a smaller scale than you know what hollywood currently allows so that is mangrove and small acts more generally 
If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye.